We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it In my last program, I looked at what Britain would do if the miracle of Dunkirk hadn't happened. I concluded that Britain would most likely have come to terms with Hitler, probably sometime in June 1940. In just 12 months' time from then, the latest on the 22nd of June 1941, although probably much earlier without England involved in the war any longer, Hitler would turn on Russia. British historian Alastair Horne, in his book To Lose a Battle, wrote, Had the BEF been wiped out in northern France, it is difficult to see how Britain could have continued to fight. And with Britain out of the battle, it is even more difficult to see what combination of circumstances could have aligned America and Stalin's Russia to challenge Hitler. In this program, I'm going to look at what might have happened to Russia when, as Churchill had said of the looming Battle of Britain, the whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Now that meant the Soviet Union. Would Stalin have survived then? With the punsers starting their engines lined up along the borders with Stalin's Russia and Guderian and the Panzer forces knowing how to fight a lightning war this time, based on their experience in France. With Britain out of the war, there would have been no campaign in the Balkans, holding up the time for the invasion of Russia to begin, especially not on the date that it did, 22 June, the same ill-omened date that Napoleon had invaded Russia. There would have been no airborne landing at Crete, leaving the airborne troops with all of their experienced officers and men not horribly whittled down in numbers by the invasion of Crete and not forever banned from conducting airborne operations. Rommel would have joined the invasion of Russia, probably without making such a reputation for himself that he was able to do fighting the British and Commonwealth forces, opponents who admired his skills, brilliant tactics and gallantry and they gave him a lot of publicity. There would be no room for Rommel's gallantry in Russia. Historian Norman Gelb, in his book Dunkirk, the complete story of the first step in the defeat of Hitler, says this. For the Soviet Union, the consequences would have been grim indeed. The Battle of Britain would not have taken place. During that historic battle, which commenced six weeks after the conclusion of Operation Dynamo, the Luftwaffe lost 1,882 aircraft, as well as great numbers of its most experienced pilots and bomber crews. Had they not been last, Hitler would have had an air force more than half again, as large as the one at his disposal when his blitzkrieg against the Soviet Union was launched the following June. In addition, 
he would have been able to dispatch up to 40 more divisions against Russia, ones he would not have needed to deploy on his Atlantic Wall elsewhere in Western Europe or in combat against the British in Western Egypt and Libya. Even without those additional divisions and aircraft, the German army took some 3 million Soviet prisoners of war during the first four months of its invasion of Russia. Moscow might have fallen, Leningrad too. The D-Day invasion of 6 June 1944 was a miracle of concerted effort of planning, preparation and execution, with even Eisenhower doubting that it could be successfully pulled off. One of the big contributors to victory had been the Allied bomber offensives over Germany and Europe that had become quite formidable in scale and effect just before D-Day that impacted on German arms production, reducing it considerably from what it could have been. The Allied invasion forces had to travel 160 kilometres from the southern counties of England to the beaches of Normandy, without Britain as an unsinkable aircraft carrier, without the airfields from which the British and American bombers could operate, and without a place to muster the invasion force preparatory to the invasion the invasion couldn't have happened. Invading across the Atlantic, 6,000 kilometres, or perhaps closer, using, say, Iceland, I don't believe an invasion of Hitler's fortress Europe would have been possible. America, supporting Stalin's Russia without Britain still in the war, I believe was a highly unlikely scenario, notwithstanding how sympathetic the Roosevelt government had shown itself, surprisingly, towards that regime. As a result of the Russian invasion of Finland in December 1939, America had imposed a moral embargo on Russia. But then the Germans had knocked France out of the war, Britain had narrowly survived, and that is the context in which the following events occurred, namely, and importantly, that Britain was still in the fight. Assume that Britain went under two, in May-June 1940, and reached a peace settlement with Hitler. Hitler loved the British Empire, and at that time was not keen to be the person who caused it to come to an end. Churchill's assessment that Hitler would have imposed harsh terms was wrong. With Britain still in the war, though, and Roosevelt having been re-elected for an unprecedented third term in November 1940, he would in fact go on to win a fourth term, which inspired the amendment preventing any future president from ever holding office more than twice the situation we have today. Roosevelt now began to prepare an increasing involvement for America in helping Britain to resist the Germans, and with Britain, the Soviet Union. On 30 December 1940, Roosevelt had one of what were known as his fireside chats, radio broadcasts to start a campaign of selling to the American public the idea of supplying all sorts of manufactured and agricultural products to countries which continued to fight on against Hitler, called Lend-Lease, that mainly consisted of Britain, and came to include the Soviet Union. The fireside chats were in the form of a folksy, intimate chat with Roosevelt, and the American people over the radio. 
In January 1941, the Soviet ambassador in Washington, Konstantin Yumansky, complained to Roosevelt's trusted Undersecretary of State, Sumner Wells, about the American anti-Soviet trade discrimination. The Soviets had spies planted in many, many positions in the American government and knew that the president wasn't keen on his Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, a Tennessean who had been appointed to appease the Democratic Party's Southern Conservative wing. Wells, who the Soviets approached, was a close confidant of the president. He passed on Umansky's complaints to the president. Roosevelt saw a chance to cultivate Stalin as a counterweight to Hitler. A bit odd, since at that time, Hitler and Stalin were still in an alliance, although not a military one. Roosevelt sent Harry Hopkins, a man who was overly enthusiastic about the Soviet Union, to meet Umansky on February 11. Over the heads of Hull and other State Department officials, Hopkins approved a backlog of import orders placed by the Soviet purchasing agency Amtorg, including airplane engines, trucks, oil well drilling equipment, electric furnaces and machine tools, all to be shipped to Soviet Arctic ports. Hopkins then, on the quiet, established a liaison committee to coordinate future Soviet orders between Umansky and the White House. In the congressional debates over Lend-Lease in February 1941, Republicans and conservative Southern Democrats from Roosevelt's own party opposed the idea of military aid being sent to Soviet Russia. Russia was still, as I said, an ally of Nazi Germany. Roosevelt's Democratic loyalists inserted a clause in the new legislation that granted the president moral discretion to decide which countries were worthy recipients of Lend-Lease military aid, provided that his decision was that their defence was vital to the defence of the United States, and that decision was reached in good faith. This provision was voted into law on 11 March 1941. It was inserted to benefit the Soviet Union. Roosevelt now had a free hand to send arms not just England, Greece and other countries already resisting armed aggression by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, but also to the Soviet Union, which on the most generous interpretation could be interpreted as neutral. This ignored the fact that Stalin had invaded seven countries in the past two years as part of his August 1939 deal with Hitler. The result of this legislation was that the American Neutrality Acts were dead, along with Roosevelt's own earlier moral embargo on arms exports to the Soviet Union. Lend-Lease ensured that Britain could fight on, and Lend-Lease, as now able to be interpreted by Roosevelt, could extend to Hitler's ally, the Soviet Union. It was a cautious endorsement by Roosevelt of Churchill's vision of a grand alliance uniting Washington, London and Moscow against Nazi Germany, which didn't become a full military pact until the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and Hitler declared war on America four days later. When Hitler did invade the Soviet Union, though, there was no sudden upsurge of support in America for Stalin's evil regime. 
As late as 13 June 1941, just nine days before the German invasion began, the Soviet Foreign Ministry prepared a discouraging assessment of the US public opinion, warning Molotov and Stalin that the entire American press is waging a furious campaign against the USSR, blaming a recent wave of industrial strikes on agents of Moscow. The report predicted that the Roosevelt administration would soon be forced by the growing public outcry to call a halt to strategic exports to Russia and to detain or seize Soviet ships in US ports. The mood in Washington by June 1941 was so anti-Soviet that two high-ranking Russian aviation officers, Colonel P.F. Berizin and Major K.I. Ovchinokov, both working under diplomatic cover at the Soviet embassy as aides of the Soviet military attaché, were on 10th June declared persona non grata by the US Secretary of War Henry Stimson for suspected spying. Both men were scheduled for deportation on 21 June. The day before, Operation Barbarossa, the German invasion of Russia, was launched. American opinion towards the vile regime of Joseph Stalin still had many people who were hostile to him after the German invasion. But if Britain had made peace with Hitler in May-June 1940, would Roosevelt have still provided Lend-Lease aid to Stalin alone? And if he did, would it, in any event, have been enough to prevent the collapse of the Soviet Union in the face of a furious German attack that would have been stronger by 40 divisions and with an air force 50% stronger than was actually used? The Soviet experience of the German attack from its launch wasn't encouraging to anyone who were wondering whether Russia could survive. Senator Hiram Johnson of California, one of the men who was in the group of people labelled as the irreconcilables who had opposed joining the League of Nations back in 1919, announced, I would leave these two scoundrels, Hitler and Stalin, to fight it out. Hamilton Fish III, a congressman from Western New York, whose grandfather had been Secretary of State, said on a nationally syndicated radio broadcast that opposed though he was to Nazism, he was certain that American mothers will not willingly sacrifice their sons to make the world safe for communism. He said, It is preposterous to think of America being aligned with Joe Stalin as our pal and comrade, with his hands dripping with blood of murdered priests and nuns, and the same dagger in his hand, which he plunged into the backs of Poland, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and our friend, the little honest Republic of Finland. Congressman Frank C. Omers, Jr. of New Jersey, vowed in the House that the United States must make no ill-considered promise to send non-existent war material on non-existent ships to a nation whose whole concept of life is repugnant to us. More colourfully, Representative Robert F. Rich of Pennsylvania argued that those who want us to get into war on the side of Russia want us to get in bed with a rattlesnake and a skunk. 
Midwestern senators expressed similar views, not surprisingly, in light of the war wariness of the American heartland. Senator Arthur Kappa of Kansas said, While I am against Hitler, I have no sympathy for Stalin. The latest developments confirm me in the conviction I long have held that these European wars are not our wars. We should stay out of them. Senator Bennett C. Clark of Missouri, although a Democrat, didn't agree with Roosevelt that Stalin was worthy of U.S. support. He said, The war is a case of dog-eat-dog. Stalin is as bloody-handed as Hitler. I don't think we should help either one. We should tend to our own business. Senator Robert M. La Follette, Jr. of Wisconsin warned that in the next few weeks, the American people will witness the greatest whitewash act in all history. They will be told to forget the purges in Russia by the OGPU, that's the secret police, the persecution of religion, the confiscation of property, the invasion of Finland, and the vulture role Stalin played in seizing half of prostate Poland, all of Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. These will be made to seem the acts of a democracy preparing to fight Nazism. Thinking strategically, Senator Robert Taft of Ohio warned that however menacing Hitler appeared at the moment, the victory of communism in the world would be far more dangerous to the United States than the victory of fascism. For ultimate cynicism, future President Harry Truman, a rising star in the Democratic Party, easily won first prize when he proposed on the Senate floor on 23 June 1941, the day after Russia had been invaded, that US policy should be conditional on the progress of the fighting. If we see that Germany is winning, we ought to help Russia. And if Russia is winning, we ought to help Germany. Skepticism about aiding Stalin wasn't just in Congress. General Robert E. Wood, on behalf of the huge American First Movement, released a public statement that gives perspective to how America would have responded to providing Lend-Lease to a war purely between the Hitlerian regime of Germany and the Stalinist communist regime in Russia, when he said, The entry of communist Russia into the war certainly should settle once and for all the intervention issue. With the ruthless forces of dictatorship and aggression now clearly aligned on both sides of the European war, the war party can hardly ask the people of America to take up arms behind the red flag of Stalin or undertake a program of all-out aid to Russia. More voices were raised against America helping Russia, including by a recent former president. In a national radio broadcast, former U.S. President Herbert Hoover said, Let me remind you that Stalin's regime is one of the bloodiest tyrannies and terrors ever erected in history, which has violated every international covenant and had carried on a world conspiracy against all democracies, including the United States, that the two hideous ideologists, Hitler and Stalin, are locked in deadly combat should be regarded as positive news for their fratricidal war, must weaken the both. Statesmanship demands that the United States stand aside in watchful waiting, armed to the teeth, 
while these men exhaust themselves. Colonel Robert McCormick, editor of the Chicago Tribune, asked, Are we to send an army to re-establish atheism in Russia and the slaughter of the priests? The Tribune thundered all summer against Lend-Lease aid to Stalin. While nearly three-fourths of Americans sympathised with the Soviet Union after the German invasion, nowhere near that many Americans wanted to support Stalin's armies. According to a Gallup poll in July 1941, a clear majority, 54%, opposed extending military aid to the USSR. As late as October 1941, another poll showed that only 8.5% of Americans expressed a strong preference for Stalin's government over Hitler's. Besides the Gallup polls, public opinion surveys were conducted by Harry Hopkins' own Lend-Lease staff in July and August 1941. Harry was a pro-Soviet enthusiast for giving aid. His surveys found that there was, in only 11 states out of 48, a majority opinion in favour of providing arms to the Soviet Union under the Lend-Lease program. Not even Roosevelt's home state New Yorkers supported his policy of extending Lend-Lease aid to Stalin's Russia. And even in those 11 states that did support helping Russia, people were only just in favour. In Michigan... The motor town, home to the car and truck building factories that would be churning out trucks for Stalin, the prevailing view was that it was acceptable to arm Russia as long as it fought Germany. But if it came right down to what people really wanted, most people preferred both sides to lose. In New York and California, where the ports were from which the vast majority of Lend-Lease stores would be shipped to the USSR, public opinion was guarded at best. A Lend-Lease administrator said, The promise of aid to Russia has led to some confusion of thought. Thinking public also accepts logic of move, but for many, logic and sentiments are in conflict. Average person, because of meagre reports of what's happening on the Eastern Front, believes Germans and Russians are destroying each other, and consequently feels danger to United States is growing less. In Midwestern states, such as Indiana and Oklahoma, opposition to helping Stalin's communist regime was almost universal. Evil comes in only one colour, black. There was literally nothing to choose between Hitler and Stalin. It was just thanks to the accident that Britain had declared war on Germany after its invasion of Poland, and that Russia had held back long enough before it invaded and somehow never had war declared on it, that seemed to shape what was happening now, with Stalin becoming an honorary good guy. The only thing that was needed for the Soviet Union to get Lend-Lease aid was to have President Roosevelt determine, in good faith, whether the defence of the Soviet Union was vital for the defence of the United States. With Britain in the war, and America certain to be able to come to grips with Germany using Britain as a springboard, this was a no-brainer. America helping the Soviet Union alone, if Britain had surrendered, was far, far less likely. In a world where Britain was fighting on, giving America a base within a striking distance of Nazi Germany, American aid to Russia made sense. 
choice was between helping one liberal democracy plus the vile oppressive Soviet regime against a vile Nazi regime. But if the question had been one where it was just Nazi Germany fighting the Stalinist communist Soviet Union, then I believe Senator Clark's observation would have prevailed. Stalin is as bloody-handed as Hitler. I don't think we should help either one. We should tend to our own business. Roosevelt did make the call to aid Russia, with Britain still fighting on. But even if America had decided to back the Soviet Union alone and was somehow able to get its aid to Russia, would American aid have been enough to prevent the Nazis defeating the Soviet Union before enough American aid reached it in that first year? That first year was the year of the Blitzkrieg Doctrine that had seen France crushed in just a few days. What if that happened again in Russia? What was the possibility of that happening? Stalin and his military advisers, who had had meetings with Harry Hopkins, quickly realised that he was so sympathetic to the Soviet cause that they could speak frankly with him, reveal the true situation and demand whatever they wanted which, unlike Britain, they were never going to have to pay for. If the communists were in any doubt about how naive Hopkins was with them, the night of 31 July 1941, after two full days of discussions about the military and related needs of the Soviet Union, answered their question. He attended a meeting with the world's leading alpha predator, Stalin. Hitler didn't hold a candle to this man. Without taking along with him Colonel Yaten, the U.S. military attaché in Moscow, nor Ambassador Steinhardt. He didn't even take an American interpreter. Instead, he invited Maxim Litvinov, the former foreign affairs commissar, to translate Stalin's remarks into English for him. When they met, Hopkins assured Stalin that he would only pass on his words, as translated by Litvinov, directly to the president for Roosevelt's eyes only with no comments by sniping intermediaries such as Steinhardt or Yaten, both of whom had a real understanding of the monster Stalin. Stalin knew this was a golden opportunity. He gave Hopkins three whole hours of his time. The result was that Hopkins was given an incredibly frank view of how Stalin saw the war with Germany in its sixth week. Since Hopkins had made it plain that he believed Soviet morale would hold up, Stalin felt able to give him the unadulterated truth. He didn't think that Britain and the USSR could defeat Germany alone. He wanted Hopkins to plead with Roosevelt to get the United States to enter the war. The one thing that could defeat Hitler. Stalin said he was confident that the Red Army had enough troop reserves to survive the winter. The Vozd, a Russian equivalent of the term Führer, revealed how desperate the Soviet material situation now was as a result of the German advances into the Soviet industrial heartland. Stalin told Hopkins, about 75% of the sum total of our munitions plants are in the general area of which Leningrad, Moscow and Kiev were the centres. The evacuation of industrial equipment to the east has already begun, but if the Germans occupied these areas, they will destroy almost 75% of Russia's industrial capacity. 
Stalin was concerned enough that we are short of steel for tank manufacture and wished that orders for American steel be placed at once. It would be much better if our tanks could be manufactured in the U.S. I wish to purchase as many of your tanks as possible to be ready for the spring campaign. The only important thing is the production of tanks during the winter. The tank losses on both sides have been very great, but Germany will produce more tanks per month this winter than Russia, hence the aid of the U.S. in supplying steel and tanks is essential. I would like to send a tank expert to the U.S. I will give the U.S. our tank designs. We are suffering real damage because of the ongoing destruction of our aircraft factories, including two near Moscow. We need Soviet pilots to be allowed to train in the United States with American warplanes in view of an impending shortage of pilots and the difficulty of training more so close to the war zone. I want long-range American bombers in order to bomb the Romanian oil fields. The outcome of the war in Russia will largely depend on our ability to enter the spring 1942 campaign with adequate equipment, particularly in tanks and anti-aircraft guns. Just as vital is American aluminum, which we need to build our own tanks and warplanes. In my next program, I'm going to talk about what was happening on the ground that had been rolled over by the German punces and what Lend-Lease aid Stalin got and from where, England or America. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.